Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. America, we are endowed by our Creator with certain unalienable rights life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. By honoring your career calling, you impact your family, your friends, and your community. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu. Do you know the term schadenfreude? Yes. Well, I'll be honest with you. I've heard that term my whole life, and at one point, I was like, yeah, I know what that means, but I need to be refreshed. Yeah, no, that's fine. I I did too. I'm not afraid to admit that. (laughs) (laughs) Just a little refresher. So the term schadenfreude refers to this phenomenon where we as humans gain pleasure from seeing other people suffer. Mm. In doing an episode about Spider-Man, colon, Turn Off the Dark, I wanted to make sure that I wasn't creating an episode where we just celebrate someone else's failure. And that's something I've run into a lot in the New York theater community with a lot of -of out-of-work actors. It's their lifeblood is like feeding on tearing down working professionals. And I just can't participate in that. I mean, we're all guilty of it. We we all, we all, we're actors. Exactly. Like we all can't help but talk a lot, but I try to not give way to that. Yeah. I, and theater. I compl- yeah. I was. <laughs> <laughs> Let's be clear. It's hard um, enough just to get something made. Like, come on. <laughs> no, for sure. There has to be so much more to the conversation than just, I would have done it so much better. Right. That being said, Spider Man was a hot mess, but we're also talking about Julie Taymor behind it all, who oversaw the highest grossing musical of all time, and the rock band U2, who is one of the most successful collaborations that rock music has ever seen. I mean, most rock bands fall apart within six years, and they've been 30 years strong. There's more to it than that, and we're going to get into it. Are you ready? I'm ready. Let's do it. Welcome, everybody, to a musical theater podcast where we discuss the cultural and emotional impact of some of our favorite musicals in theater history. My name is Jeffrey Scott Parsons. You can call me Jeff. Today, we are talking about Spider-Man, Turn Off the Dark, and the person I invited to talk about it with me is essentially the person that I always think of when I think of this musical. Did you know that? I am I did not, but I'm flattered. Yeah, I, th- you're I think. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, my dear friend Andrew Madsen, the talented and ridiculously good-looking Andrew Madsen. Oh, thank you, Jeff. It's a delight to be here. I'm so grateful you're here. We've known each other much longer than our careers. Yes, I would say like 16 years, 15 years, Crazy. something like that. Yes, and I, th- I still think of you as one of my dearest friends, even though we don't always talk that often and I never see you. But I've also realized that that's like part of being friends with me. <laughs> Is that? Oh, absolutely. That's a requirement for me. You have to be low maintenance. It's the only way that we'll be friends. Yeah. I make friends in recent years that want to see and hang out with me like every week. I'm like, oh, this isn't going to last. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to burn out real quick. (laughs) Yep. No, we're in it for the long haul. Absolutely. So thank you for all of your support and love that you've given to me over the years. I was one of the, maybe because of the whole Schadenfreude thing. I didn't pay attention to Spider-Man when it happened. People started getting hurt, and then I was was like, I'm out. I'm not going to be giving my attention to it. And then I get a phone call from you, and it's basically like, "Uh, I just auditioned for Spider-Man. Can I talk to you about it? (laughs) If only this podcast had been around back then. (laughs) It would have been so fresh. So, So talk to me about, was the show already open? I can't remember. Well... I auditioned for that show over every 
version of it. It oh, I don't like, think I remember that. Yeah, I think I auditioned over 10 times. And oh my gosh, that's crazy. Yeah, I would never, ever, obviously never booked it. Yeah, let's be clear, we should start the interview that I was not, <laughs> that I was not ever in the show. Like, I would ne- I'm not an alum. <laughs> this is not but, one of those situations where you auditioned 10 times and then you finally got it. No, that absolutely, yeah, spoiler alert to everyone, I never got it. <laughs> but, <laughs> um... Okay, so let's think about this. All right, so 2008 was my very first audition for it, and that was the original creative team, which was Danny Ezrillo, as yeah. Daniel Ezrillo as the choreographer, and he and Julie had worked together frequently in opera productions, and their most mm-hmm. high-profile collaboration was the film Across the Universe. He was the choreographer on that film. Which, were you a fan? I I was I feel I, like I, that would be like a young Andrew. Yes, it was. Up. It was one of those like, oh, because it actually shot the summer I moved here. And I just wasn't uh. in the scene yet and didn't have the connections. And had I just gotten here, like, because every single dancer of my generation was in that movie. And I just got here, like, as they were shooting. So I, I missed it. I don't think that was like a huge hit, that movie. But it was, no. uh, it was... It had its fans. It had its fans, and the moments... Okay, so the moments in Across the Universe that worked, worked. And then there was some other moments that were there, too. Yeah. And (laughs) so, like... Anyway, so went in for that. I remember the temperature in the audition room amongst all the dancers. Everyone just kind of looking at each other sideways, like, this is for real. We're auditioning for Spider-Man the musical. Like, it was a joke. But, like, at the same time, as self-righteous as, like... New York talent likes to be like they will do anything for free. So like, <laughs> sure enough, we're all it's it is there's nothing like more equalizing than the equity chorus call, you know, <laughs> like, especially nowadays, like in the days of like Instagram fame and like people feeling like they're this and that. And it's like, yeah, that's that's cute. But I saw you yesterday at that ECC you know, and like, across I, the floor. No, exactly. you're exactly right. Where you're rolling your eyes at Spider-Man, but also like, gosh, I hope I get it. Yeah, but we're here. So, yeah. Um, and also just, you know, this was the time, though, like the economy was booming. There was big, incredible productions happening left and right, not just in New York, but in Vegas, all over the world. And so it was just this exciting time that I kind of appreciate more in hindsight it was like very common. You would just go to like a final callback for a huge show at 10 a.m. and then go to a final callback for another huge show at 2 p.m. And it was just like, wow. that's what you do. And now it's now it's a little different. Oh. Yeah, <laughs> but anyway, okay. So that was 2008 and I was in a show at the time on tour. And so I was flying in for these things and then Wicked. having to fly back out to the road. And so it was always a lot of drama, a lot of stress, like a lot of like (laughs) leaving a performance, going straight to the airport with like your show garb still on. Something you do in your young 20s where you just don't sleep. You like take a red eye, go straight to the callback and then goes back to tour. Anyway, so that happened. That happened for about a year. I would say about four times in a year. Wow. And then I had left the tour and was uh, full time back in the city. So now we're, we're in 2009. And then I would say I got brought in probably two or three more times that year. Anyway, so the closest it ever got was um, it was the 2.0 version. So I never saw the 1.0 version. Okay, the uh, pre-opening and, opening. Yeah, the, the preview period that lasted 182 performances and had to shut down for four weeks to make 2.0. Once it was up and running and all the injuries started happening... It's a very, especially back then, a very tight-knit community of Mm -hmm. dancers that were in their lower to mid-20s that had a certain body type that could do acrobatics and could do what the show required. There were very few of us. So we were fully aware that people were getting hurt. And it was my first time ever seeing masses of guys mid-combination in the audition just say no and leave. (gasps) Oh! Because we were all veterans, like we'd all been in shows and knew what is required eight times a week. And what this audition combination required had a lot of like capoeira and martial arts and like very difficult, stunty, 
tricky stuff. I don't know if it was a matter of I can't do that. It was like, I don't want to do that. Yeah, <laughs> like, I'm it's out. It's not worth it. And so, but me being still quite young and very hungry, and I had not yet had a Broadway credit at this point. So I was just on this mission to get a, a Broadway credit. I had had touring credits, but I really wanted that credit. And this show just for whatever reason kept calling me back. And I just with someone with very low self-worth, I was just like, yeah, <laughs> let's come, let, let's do this. But, uh, okay. So then cut to, I, I happened to have a lovely gig where I got to perform at the Kennedy Center for the Kennedy Center Honors in November of 2011. And by now it is the new choreographer. It's 2.0, new choreographer. Yeah. Chase, Chase Brock. Brock. Yeah. And just in attendance, there was Chase Brock and he happened to come sit at our table and we just started chatting each other up. And then a week later I had a final callback for Spider-Man. So I have no idea. If the, I, have, I have no idea if they were connected. They actually probably are not because it wasn't just me. There was like 20, it was the same 20 of us that keep getting called in. But okay. So that was like the long <laughs> preamble. This was the one, um, this was the phone call, right? I think this was the one because this is the one where it was serious because there was this custom rig built throughout the entire space that had its own crew that, you know, are the best in the world at doing these high wire flying rigs. Yeah. So we're in the space because there's no rehearsal space to do this. And you're all weighed, you're all measured, you're all given a costume fitting, essentially, because they have to build everything from scratch. And those Spider-Man suits were gorgeous. Like these things were anatomically flattering, beautiful, high quality and what kid wouldn't want to be like in a superhero costume like that? It was pretty cool. Hallelujah. So you're in, you're getting all fitted. You're all in front of each other. You're kind of like, you know, that scene in Jurassic Park where they're feeding the cow to the raptor and they're all just watching this cow get hoisted <laughs> up in a crane and they're all just kind of watching like, like kind of huh. interested, but also like what's going to happen. <laughs> like, so we're all just taking turns watching each other get hoisted up and like, you know, weighed in the air and we're just keeping it light it was just so strange and uh there is no like marking it like they've they've screened all these guys so we'd sit in the seats like the audience would and we'd see from the very 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 top balcony the stunt guy and the thing they're like okay so you want to make sure that when you take off your knees are bent and then you're just gonna go and the, and the guy's flying like 30 miles an hour around the the arena and like you have to hit all these different landing pods that are planted everywhere throughout the space and then you just watch it like once or twice this is I mean, like you're, ninja warrior it, but, it was a bit but it was like but it but, but none like of, none of us were frightened though we were all just like okay like it wow just, that's the dancer life truly in in a nutshell you're like, like, we're excited to do it. Yeah, like this sounds cool. And so we, we watch it a few times. And then like one at a time, you all get, you know, you have to walk up as if you were an audience member to the top floor of the largest theater on Broadway. You know, if you're like us and you, you've you been on a budget, you're in the, the top balcony and you're like sometimes in the front row of the very top balcony and there's that guardrail <laughs> to like, you know, not fall over into the auditorium so you go up there and you you step over it and you walk out to this little <laughs> plank and you're get put in the hardest and then you fly and it was actually it was really fun i really i've i've never been afraid of heights and then i had to leave right after that to go to a final callback for another show and i ended up booking that show and i just went with that show and so that kind of like was the end of my spider-man journey oh so then cut to after i had gone and completed the run of the other show how to succeed uh, Yes, the 2011 revival. So that ended, and I was like, all right, let's just go see this thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I went and saw it, and it was interesting to see it knowing how the combination from the auditions had evolved over four years and wow. how that, even though I was never in it, like I, I keep meticulous notes. I record every combination I've ever done. Like I keep really, like a, oh my goodness. Every combination I've ever done. I take a video library so that, you know, in case yeah. I get called back in, I got to remember it. And, so wow. I, I know, so I never ever was able to observe it just the way a tourist would. Cause I felt so invested in it and I was so connected to so many people that were in it and they would feed me all the the stories and that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, pretty early on in the process, they stopped calling it a musical. <laughs> like yes. anytime the creatives would talk to the media, they would call it 
a rock and roll circus drama.、Mm-hmm. And the more that I hear you talk about it, the more I kind of think they were right. Because even walking into a theater where you've seen ragtime, it didn't feel like what the entire community was used to. Absolutely. And I think that is what drew me to it in the first place because I always feel that duality. I'm not a traditional musical theater purist. Like, I didn't grow up with it. And I love it. I do love the golden age of musical theater for what it is. But I love when people mix things up and try to turn something on its head while still paying respect to the art form. The jury is out if that was accomplished with this production, but、yeah. it's. Indisputable that the form was being challenged in ways that it never had before with the use of technology and just the intellectual property. Again, everybody scoffed and rolled their eyes when they first heard it. They thought it was a joke. Maybe I would have been one of those scoffers, but because it was coming from the Julie Taymor world, I was like, well, I have to see what this is. Because, It's got to at least be because, interesting. Yeah, and that's what I absolutely love. And respect about that woman is that she's so brilliant and brave. And I've never seen someone that has established such an aesthetic. Like they can tell so much story with a visual tableau that、mm-hmm. is breath- breathtaking. I mean, she's voraciously unapologetic about her passions and just、yeah. goes uncompromising for it. vision. That's what、yeah. everyone always says. You know? <laughs> so Jiminy Glick, the way he says <laughs> uncompromising vision. I'm compromising vision, Julie Tim. <laughs> <laughs>、um, anyway, like I said, I didn't have any interest in it, so I didn't listen to any of the music. But then, just a little podcast history, a few months ago, did an episode on Merrily We Roll Along. Okay. Yeah. Famous flop from the 1980s. Hal Prince directed it, legendary director Hal、yeah. Prince. And then the following week, we covered Cabaret. And,、mm. and it suddenly occurred to me oh, like this amazing director, this auteur of musical theater, created both of these pieces. Both of these shows that had completely opposite trajectories came from the same artistic mind. And that's what got me thinking about possibly doing Lion King and Spider Man,、mm. which is、mm-hmm. when this comes out, the last week will have been all about Lion King. And it's like, okay, we have these two properties, literally the exact opposite trajectories. One is the highest grossing musical of all time, one is the musical that lost the most money of all time. And they both come from the same artistic mind. Now, in the case of Spider Man, which of course is a part of the Marvel franchise, things got off on the wrong foot almost immediately.、Mm-hmm. In that with Lion King, that Huge budget because it was a very expensive show was funded by Disney. And you think about Shrek, was funded by DreamWorks, and Wicked was funded by Universal. All of these big budget Broadway spectacles had a big company fitting the bill.、Mm-hmm. In the case of Spider Man, Marvel gave the go ahead to turn it into a musical, but they were not interested in putting money into it. So you got this one guy named Tony Adams who's going to be raising. All of this money through individual investors. He thinks that he has all of the money ready to go. Then he dies. <laughs> I, I don't laugh because of his death. I laugh because, like, talk about a bad omen. Well, no, it's, it's so poetic, especially in hindsight, that that happened right off the bat. It is ironic. <laughs> so, <laughs> to say、yeah. the least. Yeah. Now, before he passes away, however, he assembles a pretty awesome creative team. First and foremost is Julie Taymor, who, you know, we've talked about plenty in terms of being from Lion King. And I think it's very easy, like you said, to scoff off this entire idea of creating a Spider Man musical. But when you start to look at it through the eyes of Julie Taymor, I think you go, I see how well this is coming from this artist's mind.、Mm-hmm. First and foremost, Comic books. The beautiful thing about comic book is that the story is told so succinctly in these different pictures, in these different tableaus. And when you look at the work of Julie Taymor, as interesting and creative and extravagant as you may think, it's actually also very minimal. You can't、mm-hmm. have somebody who loves puppetry as much as she does without going in that minimalist direction. I mean, Kermit the Frog, perfect example. That、mm. is like green felt 
and mm-hmm. a hand in it. And that's mm-hmm. about it. And yet we believe that it's alive. Mm-hmm. The, the magic of puppetry isn't creating something so realistic. It's about creating the magic of believing that this thing that doesn't have life is, in fact, alive. And she did that beautifully with Lion King. So you could see how that craft of hers would fit right in in the comic book world. People that only know her from her Broadway musical direct, they forget that she has a decades-long established career directing Shakespeare and opera. Classical theater, absolutely. This woman knows she's used every tool in the book and knows how to do it brilliantly to produce these mass melodramatic spectacles using mostly visuals that uh, inform the story because most people don't speak all the languages that opera are sung in. And a lot of people have a hard time following Shakespeare, but she knows how to deliver it for everyone. I think once she realizes that maybe her aesthetic would be great for a comic book, she starts reading them. And she gets to, I think, the first edition of The Ultimate Spider-Man. And in that first story, the Green Goblin, before he became the Green Goblin, recounted the legend of Arachne. Mm. which is a Greek myth. It's not a part of the entire story at all, but in one frame, he talks about this very famous myth, which is that there was this woman, and she was an amazing weaver to the point that it angered the gods. And long story short, Athena destroys her art, and so Arachne decides to kill herself. And before she can kill herself, Athena turns her immortal by making her a spider and thus the birth of the arachnid forever there will always be a spider weaving her web in the dark shadows of the world and so julie Taymor, classical theater you know royalty sees this myth planted in the spider-man universe and says boom there's my ticket that's how we're going to tell this story. The connection between the superhero Spider-Man and the Greek myth Arachne. And immediately Marvel's like, absolutely not. (laughs) 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 And and Julie Taymor is like, well, if Arachne's not part of this show, then I'm walking. So they make a compromise about how it's going to fuse together They bring on a book writer who had worked with her composing partner, Elliot Goldenthal, by the name of Neil Jordan, who uh, has written a lot of films. He does a treatment of this whole concept that she wants to to tackle with Spider-Man. He says, by the way, I'm good friends with Bono. Let's see if he's interested. They meet with Bono and The Edge, his songwriting partner. Uh, Like I said, they've been together for years, and they both sign off. Julie then reads Neil Jordan's treatment of Spider-Man and hates it, and so he gets fired. So now they're looking for a new book writer to work with her, because it becomes obvious that she's going to need to have a say in, in the script. And who they end up picking is Glenn Berger. Now, after this entire experience gets done, he writes a book about creating Spider-Man, the musical. And I read it over the last two weeks. Okay. So my first interaction with this musical is reading his book. Oh, wow. And then after I read the book, then I listened to the music. And then I looked at the bootleg that's online. Okay. So I kind of did this reverse thing, and I'm really interested to see how our two perspectives of it line up because of that. So we've got this creative team. They've got the money. Then at some point, they don't have the money. Some investors start walking away. They are, at this point, completely cast, Mm -hmm. using a lot of the people from across the universe, including Mm -hmm. movie star Evan Rachel Wood. Alan Cumming. Right? Alan Cumming was supposed to be the Green Goblin. Everybody has been cast. They also have the theater at that point, yep. and it's like in the middle of renovations. So yeah. when when those millions fall aside, that theater sits dark for quite some time until they can raise more money, which means 
that the budget gets more and more and more because they are paying Alan Cumming because he was supposed to start rehearsals yesterday. They're paying for the theater uh, in terms of rental space, so on and so forth. That is ultimately what makes the budget of Spider-Man as big as it became, is there was a huge space of time where they had to raise more funds, and while they were raising more funds, they were spending more money. And all on display. None of this was behind closed doors. Like a lot of films, we don't know about a lot of their turmoil because it's behind closed doors. Like this was happening on display for the whole world and the press to pick apart. There must have been some mole. I don't know who it was that kept on talking to the press, but there was one like gossip columnist from the New York Post who kept writing about it every week. And then other media sources would pick up that story and run it. So there was really kind of only one guy who kept on like spilling all the dirt. Interesting. It was not me. For the record, it was not me. (laughs) So they get the money. They're back in it. Marvel finally does step in, I believe. Of course, Alan Cumming has already left because he's doing something else. Evan Rachel Wood has already left. They have to recast the thing because now all this time has gone by, which is probably why you're still going to calls eight and nine. It finally goes into rehearsals in fall of 2010. And that's when they start realizing how ambitious this tech is. I I remember the book writer, Glenn, talking about how he went into the theater the first time to see them trying to create the aerial stuff. Mm -hmm. And there's like a sandbag attached on the wire. And they're like, all right, let's try it. And like the sandbag just gets slammed into the proscenium wall. And you're like, oh, wow, that could have been a person. It was. It was. Many people were slammed into that proscenium, (laughs) sadly. And. And so then it takes another hour to reprogram that one flight pattern for the sandbag. That's even before a person gets on it, you know? So the tech rehearsal is, I believe they were doing 10 seconds per hour, something like that. it. It takes forever. They finally have their first preview in November of 2010. Now, throughout this period, people start getting injured. Somebody breaks both of their wrists, uh, somebody fractures their foot, and then during the preview period, they have the really bad one where one of the guys wasn't properly anchored and he falls onto his back and fractures his spine in several places. And these are all in performances. This isn't in rehearsals. This is with an audience witnessing people getting hurt. And last week, our guest was Tehran. He was talking about Lion King and how there were a lot of injuries in there and that he was really upset that the producers hadn't stepped in to look out for the performers. Uh, There could have been steps taken to protect people. And so I know that that is part of theater. It's part of my experience. Right. And I know I'm sure that's probably happened to you as well, working with production companies. Of course. So where do you think the line is? Obviously, one person getting injured is too many. But at what point do you see the writing on the wall with all of these going on? And it's not just a matter of, well, everybody gets hurt. It's like, no, let's do something different. I don't know. I don't know if it's just being young and fearless and not really weighing the magnitude of how dangerous it really was. But like producers and Julie Taymor, they're not young and fearless. You know? Oh yeah, I de- I absolutely cannot speak for them or what their attitudes were towards that. I, I can't. yeah, but um, I was just saying from like the perspective because it does beg the question: Why were people still wanting to to do it? Know? But it's like, have you ever mm-hmm. met a theater performer? Like, and I just I was on a mission to get a Broadway credit, and this just seemed like the quickest one because it was the only one that was like regularly calling me. <laughs> so I was like, all right, well, this is bound to happen at some point. I was like, wow, I'll get that's it. fascinating. Like. The reason that there are so many auditions is because so many people keep getting injured. But you're like, well, this is my best. This is oh, one yeah. of the best options I have. Yeah, I'm not I'm not a mathematician, but I, I could, you know, factor enough probability to be like, well, this has the highest turnover and they keep calling me in. I'll just go in, get my credit, get out. You know, like I just wow. I had I had this goal. I was going to get a credit on Broadway and thank goodness I did get it. But um, it was not in that show, which 
as it turns out, was probably a blessing. But I'm just wondering, like, in terms of empowering theater to be sustainable, you know, I, I worry so much about this art form that I love so much, about it even being a viable concept in the future, you know, COVID aside. Yeah. And so when we talk about a show like this, is it up to actors? Is it up to our union? Is it up to producers? You know, like, who needs to step up and make sure that we have theater in the future, that we don't just all bankrupt ourselves and and then maim ourselves in the process? I don't know. No, it's a very valid question. I don't want to be cynical and I don't want to be negative, but it is a business. Yeah. It is something that I think in this time we can reevaluate because Broadway shows rarely go on strike. Um, The musicians union and the local one have have at times they have they have very strong unions. But the age old fear is that the producers will just say, well, we'll find somebody else. Yeah, well, you're all fired and we're going non-union, you know, because it is up to their discretion. And so as long as that power is in place. And I must say, every production I've ever been in, I've never felt exploited to the point where my life was at risk. You know, I, I would hope that I wouldn't put myself in a situation like that. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that any of the guys that signed up for Spider-Man were doing that. I think they were just excited to be part of something epic and excited to have a job. And mm-hmm. I really hope they're okay. So until the, the patterns are changed, I don't think we're going to see any different results when at the end of the day it's everyone's trying to make money make money yeah um all right so the show at this point is divided into two stories the first act was all about spider-man versus the green goblin and the first act would end with the green goblin being defeated then act two would come back and it was like oh everything's great spider-man doesn't have any enemies oh wait he does It's Arachne. (laughs) And then Act 2 was all about him defeating Arachne, who wasn't even part of the Spider-Man universe. Right. She was just this myth that was briefly mentioned and then kind of blown up into an entire plot point. And not just any plot point, like the entire second half of the show. Yeah. Because it's like, oh, wow, that's all well and good. I feel like that's an example of being like, wow, thank you for like educating us and exposing us to this this is really interesting i i don't remember this from the movie though can we just do the movie (laughs) i really because i feel like that was the consensus it was just like okay very cool we all really appreciate you like bringing culture to us i don't remember toby mcguire saying that let's just do that right not only that but you you run the risk of pissing off a lot of comic book fans right right which is a, a, a hefty bunch yeah just like any diehard fans of anything right right But you see how she was trying to meet ancient Mm -hmm. myth with modern myth. Mm -hmm. You know, superheroes are our mythical creatures. Of course. And so to take an ancient Greek myth and then, you know, Spider-Man and and see how they're connected is 100% Julie Taymor storytelling. And then on top of it, you look at this character who is punished by the gods for being too uncompromising in her art (laughs) and you're like oh my gosh julie taymor is arachne Mm -hmm. you know like this as much as it's about spider-man this is also about her you know and as as any piece of art needs to be personal yeah that's that's really well put oh well thank you in any case people weren't having it and the more that people wouldn't have it the more personally attacked she felt Mm. Until finally, the producer steps in and says, we're closing down before we even open. Because up until this point, they've still been in previews. There are audiences coming. They're making millions of dollars a week, but it's still not open. Right. And the New York critics completely rebel against that because it's not fair to all of the other shows who did open and are, you know, making money or not making money based on their reviews. It's not fair that Spider-Man doesn't have the same issues to work with. So they all go see the show before opening, which is a big, big no-no in terms of Broadway New York theater. Right. The producer sees all of this negative press and, and realizes they got to shut down. When they shut down, they ask Julie to take a leave of absence. She goes to Mexico, and they bring in a new director. And the director is named Philip William McKinley. 
And his only other Broadway show was the Hugh Jackman um, going down to Rio. The Boy From Oz. Boy From Oz. Thank you. And so everyone's like, why would he be the new director? The reason is is because he also directed Barnum and Bailey for Mm. years. Mm. And so it's like, oh, maybe he should be the one. If he really does have experience with circuses, both metaphorically and literally speaking, maybe he should be the one to go into Spider-Man. They go in, they bring another book writer to work with Glenn. And what they do is take out most of the Arachne stuff in terms of her becoming a villain in the second right. act and have her become this like angel. She was like, yeah, she was like the good angel on your shoulder. That had right. A very, yeah, that's the version I saw. So like the opening visual of the show was the uh, female ensemble were wrapped in silk and they were hoisted upstage in a single line. And then they were on a queue while the tale of Arachne was being told, you know, voiceover. Mm-hmm. They were uh, released kind of like a swing, like the, if anyone mm-hmm. saw Matilda, the way they would swing out into the audience. So they right. would swing. And as they would swing forward, a silk would come up from the floor and raise up. And then they'd swing back and then they'd swing forward and another silk would come up. So it was creating a full-size, life-size proscenium woven fabric being woven in front of you with human. Incredible. So that's what the whole experience was, with these beautiful artistic moments that were beautiful to look at, and then a book scene, and then right. and then a cardboard cutout, you know, recycled dialogue version from the film, and then into this beautiful artistic abstract moment, and then back to, like, a high school musical not mm-hmm. not the show, but like an actual high school musical. <laughs> like, yeah. Like a reverse engineered, let's perform a Frankenstein surgery of stitching together these mammoth things that we've invested three years of money and time into and try to make mm-hmm. them pay off and be relevant to this more palatable story for the tourists. That's what I saw. And by doing yeah. that, I was like, these poor performers are just holding on for dear life to something that... I don't think anyone in this building has ever had a firm hold on with the clock ticking and the bills piling up. I will be Mm -hmm. so honest with you. I don't have any memory of the book. I have no memory of the score. If you ask me what my thoughts were on the score, I don't have any because I don't remember. I remember Reeve, the actor that played Spider-Man, was was fantastic uh, vocals. Like He has a fantastic rock voice and he definitely had this Bono-esque delivery delivery and Mm -hmm. he sounded great and i was really impressed and i'm always impressed by patrick page as the green goblin because he he talk about full out he did not hold back at all and just went for it and i was actually just delighted by it because i was like he knows what he is in he knows what is being thought of him for being in this and he's like He's going to double down and go for it. And, and he's I think, using it. And, you know, he, like that old adage of like, use it, use it to make your performance better. That's exactly what Oh, he my did. goodness. He did. And that voice is so unmistakable. And he was funny. It was like he was not a villain at all. He was like the most comforting thing on that stage. Wow. That, those are my only memories. Other than that, I was just watching all of my all of the sequences being like, OK, could I do that eight times? Like, I'm, I'm just watching right. strictly as. Yeah. Now, real quick, I'll give you the rundown of what it was in 1.0. Okay. Act 2 starts, and Arachne is like, Spider-Man, you're amazing. Marry me, and we'll be together forever. Mm. And he's like, no, Mary Jane, love her. And so then she loses her Mm. and and tries to destroy Spider-Man. It gets really confusing because in her web, she creates the image of villains... So then Spider-Man shows up to fight these villains, but they're not actually real. They're just reflections that she created in her web. Okay. And then there's this epic battle where they fight each other. Instead of killing her, he forgives her, which changes her heart and allows her to finally ascend into heaven. So he killed her with kindness. Basically. Okay. Based on that synopsis of Act 2... People would leave the theater pretty excited about Act One and then really either annoyed or confused by Act Two. And at least with 2.0, 
the general audience was giving an enthusiastic standing ovation by the end because I think it was at least coherent and something familiar to what they already knew the Spider-Man story to be. Mm, interesting. And that's what they were more interested in than anything. Right. Which then takes us to opening. So the show opens 2.0. The Tony Award nominations come out the next year, and Spider-Man is pretty much totally forgotten except for costume design and scenic design. It wins neither. Patrick Page doesn't get nominated. They don't win for scenic design. Once is the musical that wins for best scenic design. It's definitely a message that they were sending to the musical. Mm, Interesting. The other thing that happens right around that time, I believe, is there's another really horrible injury. One of the Spider-Men is supposed to be coming out of what was the orchestra pit, right, but being lifted out of uh, on hydraulics, and his foot was a little too far forward, and it gets crushed uh, as it's coming up, and they didn't bring it back down. They just put up a screen to kind of cut him out while the audience is there because they were afraid if they brought the lift back down, uh, it would cause even more damage. So because of that injury, they were going to need to add yet another safety thing that was Mm -hmm. going to cost way too much money. And at that point, they weren't going to be recouping unless they ran successfully for five years. So the writing on the wall, they end up just closing. They were going to open another production in Vegas. That got canceled. They were going to do an arena tour. That got canceled. At this point, I think they're still trying to maybe make a buck with it, but it's kind of impossible to see the way forward. Wow. What a mess. Right? Mm -hmm. Okay, so I read the book, read this whole story, which is really fascinating, and then listen to the album that Bono put out. It's just called Music from Spider-Man. It's actually the the song list isn't the entire score, and it's not even in order, in hmm. show order. The album kicks butt. I'll have to listen to it. Did they do a cast album? It is the cast singing all of the songs. Got Bono it. may be adding some background vocals or singing a couple of lines, but it is as close to a cast album as you're going to get. The production on it, though... It helps me realize what they were going for. Got it. It isn't just musical theater trying to be rock music. It is rock music Hmm. first and foremost. Interesting. That being said, I don't think it transfers well into the theater because then I watch the bootleg, which granted it's a bootleg. How much energy can you really get from it? But it seems everything feels really underwhelming for as much money, for as dangerous as it is, and for as exciting as this rock music sounds on the album when it all comes together in the theater and on this little camera on your phone, it seems kind of boring. Yeah, I had that same reaction. And that's crazy to me. Yeah, it made me a little sad because I knew how much, I mean, not to the extent that you've researched, but I knew just from being in the peripheral of it for so long, I knew just what battle it was to get this thing made. So when I finally did go see it, I don't want to say I wasn't impressed, but there's something... I hate to call upon Wicked, but I'm going to. When, when Elphaba flies, she does not fly. She's on a cherry picker that is brilliantly lit, and the mechanics are cloaked by a piece of fabric that the ensemble out of the audience's eye is in the back shaking up and down. Like you're in elementary school. Yeah, like the parachute. That's exactly uh-huh. what it is. And it is absolutely thrilling. Like, all she does is elevate probably about 12 to 15 feet off of the ground at a sustained little speed while singing the climax of that song. And it's absolutely thrilling. And then stand that next to highly intricate, dangerous, in-your-face, high-wire-flying combat. And I felt nothing. (laughs) Isn't that fascinating? That's the power of theater. And I have to add, as someone who was a dancer at the time, um, I knew all of these boys, like, not in the biblical sense, but like, I <laughs> no, but like, I knew their bodies, you know, as in, sure. I, I know their bodies. So even though they're all in the Spider-Man suit and have masks on their face, I know who is who. And that also bothered me. And maybe that was intentional to just like be overwhelming. From what I understand... 
it was intentional. It was meant to be more theatrical, you know, to say, look, we know you can see the wires. We know that you know that there's more than one Spider-Man up here. So we're just going to embrace it and go further with it. But what I think that that did in all of these different arenas was create overstimulation where then people just kind of max out and don't care anymore. And I think that that has taught me a lot about what is powerful about theater. Mm-hmm. It's the Kermit sock. It's the parachute in Wicked. It's those moments that transcend beyond what they actually are yeah. to create a feeling, a communal feeling for yeah. this this audience in a theater. Like that's magic. Absolutely. So we're going to go through the show really quickly and just hit the plot points and some of the major numbers um, so that people get an idea for what the storytelling was based in. One of the things that they also cut out of the first version were the geeks. Mm-hmm. You you would bounce back and forth between the story of Spider-Man and then this group of geek Spider-Man fans who were actively creating the story we were seeing. The geek chorus. Oh, my gosh. See, exactly. One of those other ancient things Julie was trying to bring into modern day. Which is like, great, but no thank you. <laughs> That's yeah. <right> there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So in 2.0, the geek course is gone, but we still start, like you said, with Arachne. It just so happens Peter Parker is giving a book report on her and mm. the myth. You know, there was one lyric that I find really telling my art is dead, so what good is my thread? Ooh. When you see her mourning how what has become of her art, I just think of Julie Taymor watching wow. Spider-Man 2.0. I, I don't it, think she did. <laughs> <laughs> she was there opening night. You're kidding me. She showed up, and she didn't think she was going to, but she felt like she wanted for the cast to show up and show her support for their work that they were doing, which is wow. very, very kind. Wow. The producer didn't even pull her a ticket. Because he didn't want her to show up. That's insane. She shows up and like uses the ticket of like a, a music supervisor who worked on the show and was very gracious despite everything. So with as uncompromising as she can be, that was a pretty big feat of forgetting your own ego, in my wow. opinion. Wow. I had no idea. That's, that's really wild. Yeah. Good for her. So he's presenting it to the class We see it all happening, and when it's over, the teacher is very impressed and so then gives the entire class more homework, which just makes everyone mad. And so now all of his bullies continue to bully him after class because now they have more homework. And there's this whole number called bullying by numbers. After Peter gets beat up, he goes home to his aunt and uncle, who he's been living with, and on the way home, he talks to his like childhood friend, Mary Jane. There's kind of an immediate attraction. In 1.0, there wasn't, but they really wanted to drive this thing home that they want to be together and should end up together right from the get-go. And they have a lot in common because he feels completely out of place in his life because he keeps getting beaten up. She has an abusive father. And they sing this really gorgeous song called No More. The next day, the school goes to a science trip to the Osborne Laboratory, Dr. Norman Osborne, who tells everybody of his latest work, which is to speed up evolution. They all sing the song called DIY World. (gasps) I remember it now. I I haven't thought about this in 10 years. But as you said, (laughs) I remember as I was watching it, I was like, what does this sound like? And what it sounded like was that number from Chess. Goes, yes. And now I'm here. I want to be and whom I want to be. And I was like, "You're exactly right." Yeah, take, you're exactly take right. That, you just blew my theater, mind. Fans, take that. <laughs> <laughs> and it's in three, four time. Yeah. Oh yeah. my gosh, you're so right. That's brilliant. Yeah. Now, when he's teaching the kids about all of this stuff that he's doing, he unveils his like greatest creation, which is the spider. But uh, the spider has gone missing. Whoa-oh. Oh, no. Cue this big spider coming down from the top of the proscenium that's, like, as big as Peter Parker's head and, like, biting him on the neck. Yeah. And he's and like, no Oof. one sees it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The people in the back row got to see this spider. Of course. So he gets bit by the spider. Next day happens. He wakes up. Of course, now he doesn't need his glasses. He's got muscles. 
and he's completely transformed. He sings this song called Bouncing Off the Walls, where he's like in a harness and then like going from wall to wall like he's Fred Astaire, but he has to sing while he's doing it. Anyway, I don't know. Am I being too harsh? No, it looks... You have to understand, as you're retelling this, I'm digging like a decade (laughs) into my memory because I really don't remember a lot of it. Because it didn't... No, I love that. I judge my theatrical experiences by how I felt. And um, I'm sad to say there's been a lot of shows where like two hours later, I'm like, what did I do tonight? And I can't even (laughs) remember. No, because I can't remember. Like, but then there are shows that I can't stop thinking about for a week. Whether it was good or bad, I can't stop thinking about it for a week. And then there are shows that like literally later that night, I'm like, I know I did something today. What did I? And I can't like, oh, I went and saw a show. And that's not a criticism on the show. It's like, I just clearly didn't connect to it, you know? Yeah. So um, how many times did you see Patti LuPone in Gypsy? uh, Five. (laughs) Five full price orchestra. (laughs) Not ashamed. I will forever Mm -hmm. praise you for that. And I did um, the Broadway production of Hedvig as many times as well. That's right. Hedvig yeah. was your other one. Yes. Changed, oh. changed my life. Anyway. Okay. But back to, back to Spider-Man. <laughs> um, yes. But okay. back, back to bouncing off the walls. You don't remember this thing at all, even though he was literally upside no, but, down. But as you're telling it, I'm rem- it's coming back to me. Like This is like a, a very interesting uh, psychiatric analysis because I'm, I'm bringing back things I <laughs> did. Anyway. So I do remember him and I remember thinking, oh. Poor guy. Yeah, right? Uh, yeah. And also, it wasn't because there was also crew members, because they were holding up fake walls that were, like, mm-hmm. clo- closing in on him and expanding. And you could see them moving the set piece back and forth. And so I was like, this is one of those things that looks like it probably took a week to tech. And I'm not... I'm not, And I don't care. And I don't care. And poor Reeve. Yeah. Interesting. So with his new powers, he beats up his bullies capoeira style and then realizes that in order to impress Mary Jane, he's going to buy a car. So he goes to this like underground wrestling match and uh, ends up beating the guy who's been dominating for a very long time, who the only way to describe what this thing looks like is like an inflatable pool toy. When he like jumped on him, it looked like he bounced on him, you know? Okay. Anyway, I'll take your word for it. <laughs> but he wins. He wins the money. He goes back home. He finds out his uncle has been shot, which is devastating. And the thing that sticks in his mind is what his uncle has always told him, which is that he must rise above whatever is happening around him. And he sings kind of the theme, the big anthemic called and he sounded Rise Above. Great in that. He sounded great. It's a beautiful, beautiful song. It is. And in it, Arachne appears, and it's kind of this first time where she's like, you are realizing the power that you have. And she kind of instructs him what colors his suit should be made out of. Hmm. Uh, And she really is kind of... (laughs) Look, kid, here's your color palette. You got red, you got blue. (laughs) Your life's going to change overnight. And so she really does become his mentor into this moment of realization that he needs to use his powers for good. The more good that he does around the city while this like crazy U2 underscoring is playing, the more he gets in the newspapers. Mm. Um, and we are then introduced to what? what's that newspaper called? The I Daily so. Bugle? Daily Bugle. Yeah, with J. Jonah Jameson. Now, when we go to the Bugle, this is the first moment where I'm like, wait, are we in 2013 or are we in 1950s? Because, like, the ladies are wearing, like, little pillbox hats and, like, have the Jackie Onassis Hmm. flip-do. And he's in, like, pinstripes. Like, he's in How to Succeed. And now I'm not sure what time period we're in. Hmm. Go figure. But obviously, Spider-Man has become a huge story for him. He's looking for pictures. Enter Peter Parker, who can get a job as a photographer because he has an in with the with right. the old superhero guy. But with all of this media representation, Osborne, the scientist, sees this sped up gene experiment in the embodiment of Spider-Man and believes that his technology has been stolen. And so now he needs to speed up his research. All of the people on his team are like, no, no, we're not ready. We're not ready. 
He says, yes, we are. And so he tests it on himself. In the process, he kills his wife and turns into the Green Goblin. All the while, Mary Jane and Peter Parker are like connecting and they sing this song uh, that sounds like, it's a beautiful day. Mm. And that's how the first act ends. Who played his wife? Oh, that was in the movie. Okay, I was like... Yeah, that was Spider-Man 2. Right. They combined those two storylines because Julie Taymor really liked the idea of something really emotional throwing him into madness. Yeah. And the Green Goblin doesn't really have that. (laughs) I can absolutely relate to that. (laughs) 2020, right here. And so then they they took the wife thing from from the the sequel and put it into this version. I was like, did Donna Murphy do like an uncredited (laughs) cameo? (laughs) Anyway, no, I'm I'm mixing my mediums. Okay. This is fun. Thank you for doing this. Of course. Okay, so Act 2 starts. Green Goblin has come up with a plan to assert Dominion. And so he brings back all of the people on his team that were like, no, no, we can't, and forces them to go through a mutation themselves in order to create this, like, army of mutants. Oh, yes. And it's this crazy song called A Freak Like Me Needs Company. Yeah. And it's like super queer friendly when you listen to it. It's yeah. about as like, I think that this song could work in a pride parade. Absolutely. I'm not, not going to lie. That, um, and I, re- I remember that number. They performed it on Letterman too. And Did they really? Yeah. Oh my gosh. And fun fact is that whenever you were called in for this show, you had a lot of tasks that a lot of boxes you had to tick. Uh, and it mm-hmm. all came down to uh, your height and weight a lot of the time because of the flying sequences, because you doubled not only for Spider-Man, but for the Goblin. And then you had to fit these incredibly expensive costumes that they had built. I think they were called the Sinister Six. Yeah, yeah, the Sinister Six. Very good memory. I I love how this is all coming back. Well, because that would because that would be in the breakdown. I'd get the breakdown of what my audition was, and it said you had to do this and cover one of those Sinister Six, which just meant you had to fit that costume. And I believe one of them, I don't remember all of them, but they were beautiful, crazy costumes, and I believe one of them was very, in the breakdown, was explicitly stated as trans. Really? That like so-and-so is a trans, either a non-binary or trans. uh, I think it was the one that had scissors or blades, maybe. Yeah, looked a little Starlight Express. But I, I thought that was interesting at the time. That That's like, really cool. That, that these non-speaking parts that were only referenced in passing in one number, even though they were villains. Some sort of but, representation. But yeah, even though they were villains, but you know what I mean. At this point, I think everyone's favorite part of the show are the villains. Absolutely. So, well, villain, I mean, villains are always more interesting than yeah. the heroes. So the Sinister Six go on this rampage through New York and uh, Spider-Man comes and quickly defeats all of them, as well as the Green Goblin. He thinks that the Green Goblin's gone. He's not. Ooh, that, uh, old, that old trope. <laughs> that old thing. He, he actually escaped. He wasn't destroyed. Instead, the Goblin goes to the Daily Bugle. And it's the scene where he's actually calling the Daily Bugle on a cell phone. And he's being like all, you know, fabulous villain getting ready to say, you all better do exactly as I say. And he's interrupted by a machine that says, please pay attention because our menu has changed. And it's this five-minute scene of the Green Goblin trying to figure out the menu at the Daily Bugle uh, via cell phone. Yeah, he Uh, becomes a comedic character, I remember. Yeah, once again, Patrick Page totally delivering and the audience is eating it up. But he also calls because he's taking credit for Spider-Man, right? Saying that it's his technology, the thing that made him who he is, made Spider-Man who he is. So now the Daily Bugle starts spreading the word that Spider-Man is evil, just like the Green Goblin, which makes uh, Peter feel horrible because that's obviously not what his intention was. And he has this dream that night of Arachne coming to him and he like floats up to this I think this is like one of those tableaus that you were talking about where he like flows up to her and she reminds him of like his destiny and that's where the song Turn Off the Dark comes and whenever Arachne sings it's this almost 
monk-like. I, I think they were going for like a Gregorian chant, Bulgarian sort of sound. It's really global in mm. the way that it sounds. Very, very cool and very yeah, I remember bizarre. it being very pretty. Yeah, it's a vibe. It's a yeah. vibe more yeah. than anything. Yeah. So even though he has that experience with Arachne, he's really turned off by all of the media, not to mention he missed Mary Jane's uh, opening night of her play and oh. realizes that so like he's <laughs> sometimes saying things out loud makes me laugh um time management right. <laughs> <He's> like, <laughs> how can i have it all <laughs> so he decides to take some time away from the spidey suit now it's just kind of teenage drama she suggests that they take a break from their relationship he's like well fine if i don't have her then i'm gonna go back to to being spider-man but then he proposes to Mary Jane randomly at a nightclub. And while they're there, the Green Goblin intercepts like the TV channel and tells Spider-Man that if he doesn't show up at a certain time, he's going to start threatening his loved ones, which then means he calls off the engagement because he wants to protect Mary Jane. And then he has his big 11 o'clock number called The Boy Falls from the Sky. Just in time. Just in time <laughs> to find the Green Goblin sitting at a piano on the top of the Chrysler building. Mm-hmm. What? Mm-hmm. Now, apparently, this is the scene that won the book writer the job. Because he was the only one who thought up something as bizarre as the Green Goblin singing an old jazz standard at the top of the Chrysler building with a piano yeah it was hilarious because it was like okay this was a lot i don't care and then if you've stayed with it this long it was like you were rewarded with this like breaking the fourth wall without breaking the fourth wall Hmm. it's like don't worry i know something self-aware about it 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 was self-aware and it was so ridiculous like this incredible actor of our time dressed in this enormous Green Goblin suit and sitting at a piano tickling the ivories and then turning his head to the audience like he's Billy Joel, just like talking to us (laughs) while on this very impressive set piece of the Chrysler building, which is like a a pop-up book that's unfolded into the house. But again, what an actor he would, he'd make it work. That's amazing. So Not enough to make me want to go see it again, but like I was like, God bless that man. What a talent. (laughs) That's amazing. He is the MVP of the show. Yeah. So Spider-Man arrives ready to fight, but then the goblin unmasks him. So now he knows his identity. There's this huge battle that takes place, which like goes into the house, right? Happening over the audience which seems crazy and I think was probably somewhat impressive. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it was... <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm a personality type that if I'm being told to, like, feel a certain um. way, I'm not gonna. And so it was just so clear that... And, and bless their hearts, they'd worked so hard to get to this point. But it, everything was telling me, like, all right... Here it is, and so here I'm like, it right. is. But like, I totally, I get that though. I totally get that. And it didn't, it didn't like launch organically into it. There clearly was like a change out from Patrick Page to Stuntman Goblin, and he even uh, like you saw him getting hoisted into his rig on a runway up center stage, and then he flies out into the house, and then they do their battle. And and while that was a very impressive aerial feat there's voiceover of dialogue happening while they're fighting from off stage mm. and it's so disconnected they're like please keep your arms and legs inside the ride at all times yeah so it, it was just so difficult to get into it when you were so aware and it was being force fed to you that like this is an event right <laughs> not interesting like yeah. you have to do all of this in order for it to be safe but then by the time it's safe you don't really care anymore well yeah because well danger is what's thrilling Wow. Interesting. Let's just say the ending. So <laughs> <laughs> if, if anyone's still listening at this point. <laughs> right. Spider-Man, uh, little to Green Goblin's knowledge, attaches him to the piano and shoves the piano off the Chrysler building. And uh, whoop, whoop. There goes the Green Goblin. Also, Spider-Man saves Mary Jane. 
The end. Cool. Oh, and then they're like, and you will rise above. Uh, yeah, the big, the big, uh, leave them inspired at the end. Yeah, which I always appreciate. Oh, that's Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark, everybody. Where can I get a ticket? Right. <laughs> this is very interesting for me because I haven't worked in musical theater in quite some time. And mm-hmm. this was so long ago. And when you approached me about doing this... I had so much apprehension because, again, all these fear-based beliefs that, like, it wasn't okay to talk about my experience for the fear of someone in the business hearing. And that was, like, for me on a personal level, this was very fun because it's like, oh, I'm allowed to just, like, talk about something that happened that is true and that's okay. And that fear is not there. That, like, oh, I'm, I'm not going to get called in by the show again if they hear me say so. <laughs> it's like, no, it's, it's, it's okay. And I actually... At the end of the day, like I, my hat is off to anyone that can get anything made. And aside from the people that were injured, and I hope they have recovered because I don't know. I didn't, I didn't, mm-hmm. I didn't follow up with all these uh, yeah. acquaintances. But like, my biggest question is when is Julie's book coming out about this? Because I, I want to hear from her. Uh, I'm actually highly intrigued to read Glenn Berger's book now. I think that would be something to add to my quarantine queue. Of, it's, of, of it's, reading. it's a great read. It's but really fun. I want to. I would love to hear juxtapose. I would like to hear it with Julie's perspective as well. They had asked her to direct, I think, Hamlet, and and what she ended up doing was M Butterfly instead. And she said, "As much as I would love to do Hamlet, because I know a thing or two about treason." Mm. <laughs> Interesting. What I do want to say though is that this musical was not a flop, even though it lost millions and millions of dollars it ran for three years people wow it was the one of the highest grossing musicals when it was open you that's know? right because i think it was 2012 is when equity passed that or <laughs> gave away and said that <laughs> said producers could enforce a nine show week a few times a year whenever they wanted based on market research of how the tourists were going to be that week so like you could get all of a sudden on your schedule be like oh and we're going to do nine shows i guess that i'm week. doing nine and that's Ugh. and my union supports that and that's what it is and so i think the grosses showed that during one of those weeks of spider-man during a nine show week it set the record for the highest grossing week in broadway history at the time wow. it, ha- it has since been long shattered by like hamilton and all those others but sure um for better or worse people had to see well i gotta see what happens here you know and exactly i was one of them exactly. and i had a very unique perspective at it without ever having to put myself in severe danger <laughs> right you know like right. and i feel in hindsight grateful for that well thank you so much for discussing this with thank me. you for it's... thank you for reminding me what i saw because i <laughs> remember most of it <laughs> i do think that we can learn a lot from the show and there are some things even to really enjoy with 2020 hindsight oh, yeah. uh, pun intended it's an unusual experience that will i'm sure will never happen again <laughs> As always, if you have recommendations for shows you'd like us to cover on a musical theater podcast, you can always email me at a musical podcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. I'm always so bad at reminding y'all to do that, but please do so. And follow us on Instagram and Twitter at a musical podcast for more great content. And if you want to do one more awesome thing, then head over to our T Public store where we have designs based on favorite moments of episodes, past and present. Andrew, how can we follow you and everything you're up to? You can find me on Instagram at Drew from the gym. And that's it. <laughs> and if and if the male form is a turnoff to you, it's not for you. <laughs> it's a gorgeous male form, though. <laughs> Thank you. Just so everyone knows. <laughs> and that's it. Everybody, take a moment to rise above. Love you, Jeff. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work 
or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R E R I S E T H E A T R E dot org because only together we rise. 